All right, so today we're starting a new series, and this series is called Countercultural Convictions. We've been announcing it over the last few months, a few times here and there, to kind of prepare you for this series. And so this series is going to go through some controversial topics in our society, in culture right now, and so that's why we're calling it Countercultural Convictions. But before we kind of get into the controversial stuff, which will start next week, uh, today this sermon is going to kind of act as like an intro to the whole series. And it's going to kind of answer the question today, why even counterculture as Christians? Or how do we counterculture as Christians? Or what even is culture? And how have Christians engaged with culture previous, previously? And so that's kind of to give you like a general flavor of where we're going today. But before I do that, would you guys bear with me as I talk through a few different moments in my life, and I'm going to oversimplify some things, okay? There always tends to be, when you talk about different cultural moments or historical moments and your perspective on them, uh, I know that I'm probably going to oversimplify this a bit, and so as you hear me say this, uh, talk through this, you're prob- some of you might go, well, that's not how it happened, or that's not what it is, but I'm oversimplifying because I'm giving you my perspective in these moments, okay? So, bear with me as I do that. The first moment I want to talk about is when I was in high school, so when I was in high school, I was going to church. Uh, I was a Christian. I was faithful. Like, I loved the Lord and all that stuff. And what began to happen when I was in high school is all of these studies started coming out about people in my age range, specifically millennials. And it, what these studies were saying, they were like Christian sociological, sociological studies that kind of said, hey, the, the, the millennials that are growing up in the church, the second they turn 18, they're out. They leave the church, and they're not coming back, essentially. And these studies were kind of making the claim, like, hey, culture, the world, is influencing and enticing these teenagers so that when they turn 18, it kind of sucks them in away from the church. And and so these studies started saying, hey, we need to give better answers about the Bible. We need to do a a whole lot of things if we're going to keep these kids turning 18 in the church. And so I turn 18... I graduate high school, and I go off to college, and sure enough, the studies were right. 80 to 90% of the kids I grew up with in church or went to youth group with, they all kind of like walked away from the church, and for a variety of reasons. Some of them walked away from the church because the world was kind of like this enticing thing, like, it, like the party scene and everything that comes with the party scene was like something they'd rather pursue, and they, they knew that the church wasn't about the party scene. And so some went that way. Some would go to class at their local university, and they would hear these things about the Bible or about God or about Christianity that they never heard before, these hard questions that they didn't know how to answer, and so they kind of had this dissonance or they just kind of walked away from the faith because being a Christian or believing the faith became too difficult. And then a whole bunch of others of my friends, they just were like, this way of Jesus, is, it's not for me. It's, it's just not for me. It's not like my truth. And so When I was 18, it was this interesting cultural moment in the church where a lot of the culture in the world seemed to entice kids that grew up in the church out of the church. And there's probably a lot more going on there, but that's at least how it was looking for a lot of it. Now, flash forward to today. Flash forward to like the last year or two of my life. Now a whole lot of people in my age range, again, and I think it's more specifically my age range, 
a whole lot of them are beginning to walk away from the church altogether. But this time how it's playing out is a little bit different, and I would say actually a lot different than how it played out when I was in high school. This time, a lot of people are kind of starting this process called deconstruction, right? We've talked about it a little bit before. I'm sure that if you've been in the church world at all for a while, there's this process you've heard about being called deconstructing. And, and, and simply what it is, and different people have different definitions of what it is. Some mean it's like, hey, you just totally deconstruct your faith and you're not a Christian anymore. But a lot of people that are, would say they're deconstructing would say, no, I'm taking things that are part of the Christian faith that I was taught growing up, and I'm examining those things, and I'm going, well, is this from God or is this from man? And, and, and trying to reject all the things from man. And, but there's kind of a wide spectrum when it comes to deconstructing. And so a lot of my friends right now are, are deconstructing. It, it reminds me of this time in high school where a lot of my friends began to walk away from the church. And so a lot of my friends who are deconstructing, what, what's beginning to happen is a, an opposite effect than what was happening to my friends in high school. See, my friends who are deconstructing, they're not deconstructing always because the world is so enticing. Often what starts their journey of deconstructing is they look at the church, they've been part of the church for 30 or so years, and they go, something's not right here. And what their claim often, and this is how they start their deconstruction process, their claim is it's not that the world is too enticing for them, it's that the world has infected the church too much. That cultures and ideologies outside of the church has infected us. And we're living under not Jesus' reign and rule and his ideologies, but under culture's ideologies. And so a lot of my friends who deconstruct, what they do is they go to their pastors and they go to their friends and they go, man, we really as the church, as, as the American evangelical church, whatever you want to call it, we believe some things that are contrary to what Jesus teaches. And then what they've noticed is a lot of times those same pastors and those same friends double down. Instead of repent and go, you know, that's a pretty good point. I don't know if that's the way of Jesus. I don't know if that's how we're supposed to be living. That does seem like a worldly cultural idolatry. What often happens is pastors and friends double down. They find more strong voices in those ideologies, more intelligent voices in those ideologies, and so they dig down deep into, the, into those ideologies. And so what ends up happening with a lot of my friends who are deconstructing is they're going, you're too much like the world, and if you're too much like the world, and I'm giving you the plain words of Jesus, and you don't want to accept the plain words of Jesus, this is all a crock. Like, this is all fake. I'm, I'm going to walk away because of that. And so a lot of people, a lot of those that are deconstructing are thinking about culture in ways that sometimes I think the church isn't listening to, okay? And so, listen, to be clear, uh, deconstructing, again, it's a wide spectrum. I think aspects of it are good. I think aspects of it are bad. I think some of the aspects are good are, is it's always good to examine and, like, look at your faith and scrutinize your faith because guess what? Jesus can handle it. Like, he can handle it. And there's aspects that are bad, too. And so this first moment in high school is a moment where there was kind of all this question about culture and what it did to people. There's this moment with me and kind of my, fr- my, my friends, age ra- my, my age range right now, where people are deconstructing because of things in culture and things happening in culture. And then 
Over this last year and a half, it feels like every Christian that goes to church has asked the question, what does it mean for us to engage with culture? Like, what are we supposed to do? And then, as we ask that question, everybody that goes to church, then they said, well, now let's all fight about it. Let's get in fights about it. Let's divide over it. Let's say there's this thing. Let's call things sin that aren't sin. Let's not see things that are sin as sin. Like there was all kinds of things that happened over the last couple of years in the church. And it really kind of seems like it's st- like this COVID situation kind of helped bring it about and, and all these different things. And so you, you have these moments in my life, these kind of three moments where the church is going, what are we supposed to do with culture? And as I was living through these different moments throughout time, what I'm seeing is a few things. I'm seeing a handful of ways culture is affecting us as the church. One of the ways is kind of like what I was seeing in high school. For some of us, culture is kind of like the sirens in the Odyssey. Like if you remember the story, if you read it in high school or whatever, the story, the epic, the Odyssey, where, there, where Odysseus is on his ship and he, he plugs his ears so he can't hear the singing of the sirens because anyone that heard the singing of the sirens would, would steer their ship over to the rocks and everybody would die. And I think for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, culture and the world is very attractive and enticing to us like sirens and it's almost has this call where if we go there, we're going to dash our faith on the rocks. For some of us in the room, I think more of us in the room will fit this category. The way culture is infecting us, or is affecting us, is like that, an infection. It's more like a parasite. Like culture has made its way into our bloodstream like a parasite. And we can't see it. And it's doing different things to our body, but it's almost like we're the kind of person that has a parasite, but we're denying it the whole time and going, no, I, that's, it's not a parasite. This is just how I am. This is who I am. And so for some of us, culture is affecting us like a microscopic, unseen parasite that does things to us and changes us fundamentally. It makes us unhealthy. For some of us, we just go, hey, I like things in culture. <laughs> like, there seems to be good things in culture. Why is this bad? Like, why is this thing bad and why is this thing? I like it. I can't understand why it's bad. And then I think the rest of us just go, I don't know what to do, okay? Like, I, I'm just trying my best. <laughs> like, love God, love neighbor. And so culture is bringing up a lot of questions for the church. And so as we start off this series called Countercultural Convictions, there's something important. There, there's a few things. There's three things that I think we have to do first. If we're going to jump into these topics that tend to be countercultural topics for the church to, uh, to talk about, there's three things that I want us to do today, to talk about today, so that we're ready and that we're doing it the way that Jesus would have us do it. So the first thing that we'll do today is we're going to understand what the Bible teaches about culture and sin. Okay, so we'll look closely at that. What does the Bible teach about culture and sin? The second thing we'll do today is we're going to give ourselves a better framework for engaging with culture. Okay, we're going to give ourselves a better framework for engaging with culture. And the third thing that, uh, that we're going to do today is we, we're going to remember something about Jesus. We're going to remember something about Jesus. So give me a second while I take a drink. So this is, for me... 
It's like dry throat season, and I sleep with my mouth open like a fool. So you'll see a lot more water drinking <laughs> in the next few weeks. So that's where we're going today. Let's start with that first thing. What does the Bible teach us about culture and sin and how we're to engage with culture? So first, a general and helpful definition of culture is this. If you're going, I don't even know what culture is. What are you saying, Anthony? Here's, here's kind of a general definition of culture. Culture is an umbrella term which encompasses the social behavior and norms found in human societies, as well as the knowledge, belief, arts, laws, customs, capabilities, and habits of individuals in these groups. So when I say culture today, a lot of times that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that, all the, the wider culture that we live in and exist in. But the unique thing about being a human anywhere is there's all sorts of microcultures everywhere, right? Microcultures that kind of contradict the majority culture at times. And so, uh, and so culture works in a lot of different ways, but it's kind of the general kind of ways people exist together in society, okay? So that's what culture is, but what does the Bible teach us about culture? So let's... I think we actually see God's building blocks for culture in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So turn with me there, or it will be on the screen. I'm going to read these verses really quick. It says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We could stop there. So verse 28, a lot of theologians, a lot of people that read the Bible go, they call verse 28 the cultural mandate. It's kind of the phrase that they've given for, for verse 28, for this command that God gives to Adam and Eve. They call it the cultural mandate. And so what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is God creates everything. Creation itself is good, but it's missing something. And so God creates humanity is what we saw in verses 27 and 28. He makes them male and female, and they are in the image of God. They image God together. They show the world who God is. They are supposed to be little stewards. They are supposed to reflect who God is in the world. And then what he says to humanity, he says, now go together, go together and be fruitful with this creation. Go and subdue everything and rule over everything below you guys, everything that's not in the image of God, rule over that and go to creation. And essentially God's saying, go create culture. A lot of times how we read verse 28 is, God's divine baby-making command, right? Like, go and have babies, right? That's part of it, sure. It says, and fill the earth. But this idea of being fruitful is more than just having a bunch of kids. Like, God is saying, look at creation and go and be fruitful with it. Go take creation together and find out what's in it. Make more of it. Discover what's there. Take parts of creation and make things out of it. So, God made humans to be culture makers. He made us to be culture makers. We're to go out into creation together as people, not as individuals. You need people for culture. 
and you need stuff to do as culture. And so God gives this cultural mandate in verse 28. He says, go out, creation, go out there and figure it out. God wants us to come up with customs and dances and recipes and technologies and celebrations and art and tools and stories. God wants us to do those things. I believe that in the resurrection one day, there will be those things. What we learn from Genesis 1 is the earth is not just a giant playground for humans. I think that's kind of how we view the earth a lot of times. I think a lot of times, too, we view heaven or the resurrection when Jesus returns and lives with us forever. I think a lot of times we view that as just like a giant playground, and I'm sure that's part of it. But earth is less a playground, and it's more a clump of clay that God wants us together as humanity to go and mold and find and see what we can chisel out of this lump of clay. Humans, we're not machines with just one function each, but we're creative beings in the image of God that reflect him in all sorts of ways. We were born out of the heart of God to show all sorts of who he is in the world by inventing, creating, playing, loving, And that's God's vision for culture. God's vision and his building blocks for culture, his building blocks for culture is humanity and creation. Creation is good. Humanity is made in his image. Those are the building blocks for culture. And so God wants culture. Culture is a good thing. Culture is part of God's design. But the story in Genesis goes on. Genesis Chapter 3, we see that God's creation and humanity are corrupted. Uh, The serpent, or Satan, a great spiritual being, enemy of God, comes to Eve and Adam, who's standing on the sidelines, and he begins to question God's vision for the world. And he does it just with a a little easy question. He just kind of goes, did God, did God really... Did God really say you have to obey him always? Like, did did God really say you can't eat from any tree out there in the garden that he put you in? Does God really want you to obey? I think he's hiding something from you. I think he's withholding something from you. And then in a moment, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They, They chased the serpent's vision for cultural. And in that moment, the cultural mandate to go out into the earth together and see what you could find in it, see what you could create, see how you could image God together, that in a moment was twisted and messed up. And, and this is where we say sin came into the world. And sin came into the world in a couple of ways. A lot of times we just view the first way of sin. We just view, hey, sin came and corrupted human hearts, and so now humans are bent inward selfishly, not in a community of love with God and with each other, but selfishly looking for their own desires, constantly ignoring God and ignoring each other. We all get that good, pretty, like we got that down pretty good. We know that. It's true. And that affects culture. But there's a second part with the scope of sin and how far it reaches that affects culture too, and it's that creation itself has been corrupted. Like the good creation that God made itself has been corrupted. 
If you go to Romans 8 and you read through Romans 8, it talks about how creation itself is groaning under the corruption of sin. If you look in Genesis 3, some of the ways creation is is getting affected by the curse of sin, you'll realize that creation itself has been corrupted by sin. And so now we kind of go, well, now I don't know what to do. Like, what are we supposed to do with this cultural mandate that God gave when humans weren't sinners and when creation wasn't corrupted? Like, what am I supposed to do then with culture and these things? We have, like, all these tensions in in the biblical story. If we just read this part of the biblical story, we have these tensions because on one side it says humans were made to create culture. On the other side it says the scope of sin is so huge it touches everything that we create sinful cultures. On the other side, another tension is humans are made in the image of God, but now because of sin, we're broken and sinful. Another tension is God made creation to be good, but sin has broken creation and marred it to where it's groaning under the corruption of sin. So it kind of just leaves us all asking, okay, I guess that's what the Bible teaches on culture and sin and all that good stuff, but it kind of leaves us all going, well, then what am I supposed to do with culture? How am I supposed to engage with culture? And that's where I think we need a framework. We need a framework on how to engage with culture. So I want to talk about uh, three frameworks that the church has historically gravitated to when it comes to engaging with culture. Like there are these sorts of ways that we we set up for ourselves, frameworks or paradigms on how to, uh, to interact or engage with the culture outside of the church body. And so there's these three frameworks, and and so we're going to go through this. These frameworks actually come from a paper by Greg Thompson called The Church in Our Time, Nurturing a Faithful Presence. And so almost each week of this series, I'm going to suggest to read something. You should read that. And, And read that paper by Greg Thompson. I'll read the title again. It's The Church in Our Time, Nurturing a Faithful Presence. And so we're going to go through these three frameworks that he comes up with. And these frameworks are things that we've all gravitated to, I think, over our life. And over, I really think they represent church history well, okay? And so as we talk through these frameworks, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, where do I line up? Like, which framework do I find myself in? Which framework do I gravitate towards? Which one is my bent? Which one is the way I think the Bible is calling me to interact and engage with culture, okay? And so uh, just to prepare you, as I read through these frameworks, so I'm not plagiarizing, I'm just going to actually read and quote Gregory Thompson, okay? And so there's going to be a lot of words on the screen, and there's going to be a good amount of reading as we go through these three different frameworks. And so it's going to be a little bit more studious, it's going to be a little bit more intellectual, but I know you'll be okay because the intellectuals, intellectuals in the room are going to go, that wasn't very intellectual, Anthony. So, um, but anyways, I just wanted to warn you, it's going to be a little bit different than maybe how I typically teach through some things. And so, um, so let's get into it. Let's look at these three frameworks that Gregory Thompson comes up with. The first reaction to culture is a framework, is a paradigm he calls fortification, the fortification paradigm or framework. Here's how he defines it, the fortification framework. 
He says the fortification paradigm suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is to guard the integrity of its divinely wrought life against the assaults of the world. In this view, the basic task of the church is vigilant preservation, and the basic threat to the church is the destructive character of the larger culture. He goes on to say that virtually in every case of a church that that chooses uh, fortification as their way to engage with culture, he says the church actively cultivates a separate existence, removed from the corrupting travails of the world. Okay, so some strengths of the fortification model. Some strengths are they take seriously the Bible's call to be a distinct people. The Bible does call us to be a distinct people. And also in this model, they they take seriously uh, the warning that God gives us about all the destructive and idolatrous nature of so much in this world. So those are some strengths of this model. Some weaknesses of this model are it tends to portray God's relationship with the world almost exclusively in terms of opposition. And that the church should also have the same oppositional relationship with the world or culture. So, do you find yourself in this framework? Is this the framework you find yourself in? Do you find yourself fortifying, moving away from culture, not wanting to be in it, to keep yourself out of the stain of culture completely? Do you find yourself in that framework for engaging with culture? Let's go to the next one. The next one is called accommodation. Here's how Thompson defines the accommodation framework or model. He says, contrary to fortification, the accommodation paradigm suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is collaboration with the world in the service of the larger good. From this perspective, the basic task of the church is active partnership with its neighbors in interest of social renewal, and the basic threat to the church is its own separatist tendencies. So that's the accommodation Framework. So here's some strengths of the accommodation framework. It it seriously takes God's call to go out all into the world, right? You see in the end of Matthew, the beginning of Acts, God wants his people to go out into the world witnessing to who he is in, in, in word and in deed. And so they take seriously this call. Here's a weakness of the model. Uh... The main weakness is this, is, is churches that, that take on this accommodation framework often become indistinguishable from those outside the church. Look at what Thompson says about that weakness. He says, and yet, in spite of these good intentions, the end result in many cases is clear. The church, in priorita- prioritizing collaboration with culture, becomes indistinct from it, embracing not only its aims, but also its ideologies and methods. This is because the accommodation paradigm fails to seriously reckon with the fact that the work of the church is not only to partner with its neighbors collaboratively, but also to bear witness to its neighbors prophetically. That is, the work of the church is not simply to participate in the world that is, but, also mer- but must also bear witness to the world that ought to be. So that's the accommodation model or framework. Do you find yourself in that framework? Do you find yourself uh, wanting to engage with the culture around you? But often as you find yourself engaging with the culture around you more and more, you're not very distinct from the culture around you. Do you find yourself in the accommodation framework? Let's look at one last framework for now. The, The third one is domination. Here's how Thompson defines the domination framework, which everybody's going, not me, not me, that's not me. Um... 
just by the name. But it says this. The domination paradigm suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is to triumph over her cultural enemies. In this view, the basic task of the church is to extend its own values into the world, while the basic threat to the church is those whose values differ from its own. Okay, so that's the domination framework or model or paradigm. The strengths of this model, uh, they, they correctly believe that Christians are called into the world. And so they move intentionally often into culture. And a lot of times in this framework, they try to maintain their distinct identity. They often do maintain their distinct identity. Here's some weaknesses of the model. Again, they tend to view the world in oppositional terms. And that tends to play out in aggressive words and actions towards our neighbors, towards the culture around us. And so neighbors are not viewed as people to be loved, but enemies to be defeated. And so those are some of the weaknesses of the domination model. And so do you find yourself in this framework? That culture for you is an enemy to be, be defeated. Maybe it's not an enemy to be defeated, but you wish it would be defeated. Or all the time when you're with your friends and you got text threads and all kinds of stuff, you're just tweeting out memes to each other saying how evil the culture is and how you wish certain people would even die in that culture. You're like, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a meme. Do you find yourself in the domination uh, paradigm or framework? Do you find yourself speaking poorly about non-Christians and trying to beat them? So which, which framework did you guys find yourselves in? I'm going to have everybody stand up at... No, I'm just kidding. Which, which, framework, which framework do you find yourself in? Where do you, you gravitate towards? What, what do you feel uh, like you... Where, where you fit and how you engage with culture? I, I, the reason I ask is because over the last couple of years, in the American church, for the most part, there, basically all of the fighting is over one of these frameworks, right? It's basically, I think this is the framework, here's my biblical reasons. Or someone goes, no, it's this framework, here are my biblical reasons. And so we all kind of fight over it. And so we're going to vote today which framework that we're going to pick, okay? So if you want, no, I'm just kidding. I think what we need is a new framework. Those frameworks are all lacking, right? There's parts of it where you go, oh, I like that part oh, I, I, I'm not sure about that part. And then there's probably parts where we go, well, I like that framework. And no, I don't do that. I never do that. I'm not, I never go that direction or that weakness. To which I would say, you need a better mirror, metaphorically. And so I think we need a better framework because all of those frameworks are lacking. And so here's the good news. Thompson doesn't just write about three frameworks. He gives a fourth framework. And he calls this framework the incarnational operative or paradigm, or framework. And the incarnational operative is the framework he thinks the church should take on. It's the framework he thinks Christians should take on. Let's see how he defines the incarnational operative. He says this, Unlike fortification, the incarnational church seeks to follow Jesus into every sphere of creation. Unlike accommodation, the incarnational church not only moves fully into the world, but also retains the integrity of its God-given character and proclamation as it does so. And unlike domination, the incarnational church sees its movement into the world not as an angry movement of conquest, but as a hopeful movement of redemptive love. 
seeking not to triumph over its neighbors, but to work for their flourishing. This vision of the church's calling as a movement into the fullness of culture, bearing the fullness of the gospel, and yet doing so for the purposes of redeeming love, is what Gregory and another author call a faithful presence. When we do that, Thompson thinks the church will be a faithful presence in the world. Now, he calls it the incarnation operative because incarnation is a word we Christians use to describe something that God did in history. And incarnation basically just means God took on flesh and came to live with us. And so he wants the model that we take on is the model that God himself took on when he came to engage with sinful culture. He took on flesh. He moved into the neighborhood. His name was Jesus, which actually was probably pronounced Yeshua back then, which shows that God came into a culture. We need to take on the incarnational operative if we're going to be a faithful presence in how we deal with culture, how we engage with culture, and how we counter culture. God doesn't stay far away from us in culture. He took on flesh and entered into our culture. Jesus took on flesh and incarnated into our world, and he showed us what to do with culture. Jesus came into culture, and he didn't seclude himself from it. Jesus took on aspects of of the human culture of the day, like his name, like I said. So he didn't outright reject everything in the culture. Jesus also opposed a lot of the cultural practices of the day because they were marred and influenced by sin. And he wasn't trying to dominate the culture. He was trying to show the culture God's redeeming love. So how do we engage with culture How do we counter culture? We follow Jesus into the culture. Jesus will show us how to be distinct. Jesus will show us how to love. Jesus will show us how very close we can get to the aspects of culture that scare us and freak us out. That's how we engage with culture. We follow Jesus in his incarnation into culture. We can't guide ourselves through culture. We need our shepherd, Jesus. But Jesus, our shepherd, doesn't lead us away from the world. He leads us into the world and not just to parts of the world, to the whole world, to the ends of the earth, he says, while maintaining our unique identity as his sheep. So which framework do you live by? Do you you accommodate? Do you fortify? Do you dominate? Jesus is inviting us to incarnate. Will we, as a church, take that call seriously? Will we take the call seriously to reflect God even in his incarnation into the world? I think that if we do, we'll find that we will have a more faithful presence in the world. So we've looked at, okay, what does the Bible teach about culture and sin? We've looked at a new framework for how to engage with culture, but there's something we have to remember about Jesus as as we go about this. 
as we go through this series, there's something we have to remember about Jesus. Because if we don't remember this about Jesus, this whole incarnation thing, it's going to feel impossible. It's going to not feel right. It's going to not feel doable. And it's this. This is what we have to remember about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Okay? Jesus is master over us. I love using that phrase, Jesus is our master, because that probably better represents what that term Lord means. We've kind of taken that word Lord and used it in a different way, few different ways in English, and we kind of just, it's just like another name for God a lot of times. But that word means Jesus is master in the New Testament. At other times it means Yahweh for the Bible nerds. Jesus is our master. And if Jesus is our master, that means a lot of things. It means he's our creator, God, who made us. He's not just an example to follow. A lot of times we're like, great, I can see Jesus as an example to follow. Incarnate, I'm going to follow that example. That's my goal. Listen, Jesus is an example for us, but that's not all he is. He's also Lord. Jesus is the God who created us and knows all, he knows all the ways we veered off the path when it comes to culture. He knows the difference between beautiful human culture and sinful human culture. And often we don't. Often we reverse it. Often we call what is beautiful sinful and what is sinful beautiful. That's what we do. And so we need Jesus, our Lord, to point that out to us at times. And when he does, his lordship, the fact that he's master over us, it's going to do some stuff to our hearts. It's going to irk you. Like, Jesus' lordship irks me. Right? Last night, I was even thinking about, uh, there's this verse where it says, like, go to your brother before you worship, type of verse that Jesus talks about, and make sure everything's good before you worship. And I was irked because I was like, oh, man, I have something against my brother. And church is tomorrow. And I had to wrestle with that. And the reason I was irked by that is because Jesus is saying, I'm Lord even over your conflicts and how you deal with conflict. So it's going to irk some of our hearts. The fact that Jesus is Lord is also going to irk some of the majority culture's hearts. It's going to irk so many micro-cultures within our greater culture's hearts. They're not going to like that we think that Jesus is Lord. They're not going to like that we think Jesus is master over our lives very often. They like the love stuff and they like all sorts of parts that are flowery. But the second we begin to say Jesus has something for us that's contrary to what my human heart wants, then they're not going to like it. They won't. And they'll label us as hateful and bigoted and whatever. And so... If Jesus is Lord, we have to remember something about his lordship, and that's at times people are going to hate us. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish the case was we just get loved all the time if we love. But look at what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. This is in Matthew chapter 5. This is the end of the Beatitudes. And if you don't know this, the Beatitudes are kind of like the key to how Jesus views, views like culture and how to be counterculture and all these sorts of things. Like Jesus comes and says, here's the problems with the world. Here's who will be blessed. And here's what they will be experienced because of what God has done in their heart. And this is what he says. For those that want to be blessed by God. Blessed, in verse 10, 
are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you follow Jesus, if you believe Jesus is Lord, you've been blessed. The problem about being blessed in a sinful world is that means some things. And in a sinful world, humanity is resistant to God. They're just, a lot of us are just reenacting, and even us as Christians are just reenacting our rebellion towards God in that Genesis story over and over again. And so if we as Christians believe Jesus is Lord and we walk into the righteousness that he has for us, People are not going to like us. People are going to revile us. People are going to persecute us. People are going to hate us. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish I could tell you, no, the, this beatitude means, like, that was just kidding. He was just being poetic. No, Jesus was telling us what happens to those that faithfully follow him. And so as we go into this countercultural series, there's going to be things that the world hates us talking about, that the world reviles. And, and something needs to be clear about this, these Beatitudes, too. I, I want to challenge you with this. Do you want these Beatitudes? Like, as you read through the Beatitudes, a lot of them sound great, but I, I'm not sure we as Christians actually want them. Like, if I'm honest, like, those two verses, verses 10 and 11, I'm like, I don't know if I want that as a Christian. Awkwardly, in my seminary class, my teacher asked us this week, are you ready to suffer for being a Christian? And I said, no. And the class was like, you bad Christian. I was like, I think I'm just being honest. But that's what comes with the territory of following Jesus. And, and some of us have to realize this. Some of us so badly don't want these beatitudes uh, that we just resist them. And culture is never mad at us, and, and nothing is ever bad. And we have to notice that about ourselves. Some of us have to realize, some of us read these Beatitudes, and we go, man, I'm living this out really well. And I want to say, no, you're a jerk. You're just a jerk. That's why people revile you and hate you and have things against you. Like, so often I talk to Christians and how they're engaging with culture, and I'm going, hey, I don't think that's really what God is calling us to. I don't think that's the loving way. I don't think that's the incarnational way, in a sense. And they go, well, I, look, this verse says they're going to revile me. So, like, yes, they're going to revile us. It doesn't mean we have to purposely be repulsive. It's the dumbest excuse. Don't use it to me anymore. Everybody in the church, I'm going to look you all you lie. Don't use it anymore. The church will revile us because of righteousness, not because of evil. Or not the church, but the world. And sometimes the world will revile you for being a jerk, and you need to notice that about yourself. So through this series, we're going to go through some of these topics that are a little bit more controversial. And they're usually topics that a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians alike, go, I don't know if Jesus' lordship should be over that. I don't know if Jesus is a master over that category. And my hope is that as I teach this series, that I give you what Jesus' lordship would give us. What Jesus' lordship leads us into. And I hope that as I, do the, like, as I teach through this series, I hope to bring truth. 
I hope to bring love. I hope to bring kindness. I hope to bring boldness. But I, I hope not to give too much of myself. I don't want to give you Anthony's truth or Anthony's perspectives. I want to give you God's truth. I want to give you what Jesus has for us. And so, uh, admittedly, because these uh, different topics that we'll go through are so culturally charged, I'm sure at times I'm going to fail. I'd ask, please don't crucify me. The Lord will deal with me. And you can correct me and talk to me about it, but some of you know what I mean by that. And so we're going to be going through these series looking at how Jesus deals with some of these countercultural topics. And my hope is to give you Jesus, not Anthony. That's what I want. And so we're calling this series countercultural because there's just things that are countercultural. When it comes to following Jesus, there are just things that cultures in every time and place will resist in different ways. The things for us that we go through over the next six weeks, maybe 50 years from now, aren't even countercultural anymore. Maybe they weren't 500 years ago. Each culture reacts to God and his ways differently. And so we're going to be looking at some of these countercultural things for our specific culture, okay? So I want to give you a little preview of what this series will look like and talk about a little bit so you're prepared and you know what weeks are coming. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people like to invite people to church. And there's frankly some weeks you can invite them or whatever. There's some weeks where like, "Ah, I might want to hear what Anthony says before (laughs) inviting them type of a thing. I don't know. So week two says this. Uh, Week two will be next week. We're going to talk about gender. The world has a lot of ideas about gender. Christians have a lot of ideas about gender. So we're going to go, what does the Bible teach us about gender? Does it teach us anything about gender? And so that issue being so charged in our culture right now, I'll tell you this. After church next week, I'm going to be at the church office about 1215-ish, which is on 4th Street. If you haven't seen it, if you need the address, let me know. And we'll provide lunch, and I just want to have lunch with you guys, and you can just pepper me with all of your questions and anything I left out, and you can even um, passive-aggressively get mad at me with your questions. Whatever you want to do, I think I can take it. I think I I might cry later, but I, I think I can take it, okay? And so that will be at the church office after next week. We'll talk more about gender. The week after that, week three of the series, we're going to talk about sex. Everybody has a million opinions about sex, so we're going to be talking about sex. We're going to do the lunch thing that week as well. We'll have lunch after church, and you can come to the church office and ask me any questions you have about sex. Some of them I might say, hey, you need to go to a biology teacher, but a lot of them I'll try to answer, okay? So it probably goes without saying, if you've got kiddos that don't know about sex yet or know about that stuff, that week is probably uh, not the best week to have them in, right? Like my daughter's seven, I haven't told her about that yet, and so she, wouldn't, she won't be in here type of a deal. Um, and so she's in kids' church every week anyways. But so uh, lunch with me after on that week as well. Week four, we're going to be talking about singleness. Singleness. What does the Bible teach about being single. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? This person keeps telling me to get married. Should I? All this kind of stuff. And so we're going to talk about singleness. Week five, we're going to talk about loving the vulnerable. We're going to actually bring up a pastor from another redemption. Actually, he's a pastor over a lot of parts of redemption. His name's Josh Prather. And he's taught me so much over the years on what it means to love the vulnerable and why that is so very countercultural. Okay, so we'll bring him up. And then week six, we're going to talk about hell, okay? And so that's probably like not, not even a big deal, right? Like not even controversial. And so that's where we'll talk about, I'm being sarcastic. Um, 
We'll talk about hell to close the series. Leslie Newbegin once said this. He said, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? That's what I hope we do as we get into this countercultural convictions, that we're not shaped by culture, but that we're shaped by the biblical story, that we're shaped by God's words to us and how to live in a time where sin exists and God is redeeming and it's the already not yet, okay? And so I hope that I give you the biblical story. I hope that we together choose to let our identities be shaped by the biblical story. So may we be a people that let our identity be shaped by biblical story. May we incarnate into culture and may we allow Jesus to be Lord over our lives. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, we don't want to do this series just to be countercultural for the sake of being countercultural. We want to do this series because you're Lord. We want to obey you. God, help us to obey you. Already, some right now probably got to go on. I don't know if I can handle that week. I don't know if I could hear about that week because of how painful it is. And because, God, I think, frankly, sometimes we've gotten it wrong as Christians and we've taught these things in really bad ways. So, God, would you do some healing in those hearts in this room right now? God, there's some of us in the room that we feel so sure about our, our opinions on some of these topics. And, and like a parasite, culture has infected us, and we, have, we need to change our mind on some things. And so, God, I ask that you draw the parasite out of us and help us to see that you're drawing it out of us so that we could follow you and you alone. God, help us to be shaped by the biblical story, not the cultural story. God, be with us as we go through this series called Countercultural Convictions. We need you. Amen.